Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be back. I was made aware that last week during our time together, I said, here we are on the last Sunday of August, when in reality, it wasn't the last Sunday of August because we have a five-Sunday month. And so here we are on August 30th, the fifth and final Sunday, and this time I mean it, of the month of August. We're heading toward Labor Day and into the cooler months of September and October. It's just a, a good time together. And so I'm so glad you're here with us today. I'm happy to be here again uh, in this particular way with you as we continue our study verse by verse through the Old Testament book of Amos. And so if you have your Bible, would you please open it up uh, and begin to head to Amos chapter 4, where we will begin our study for today. Uh, and so while you're doing that, let me pray for us as well. Father, we want to thank you for the Word of God. We want to thank you for uh, this month of August and the way in which you worked. Lord, we started this book of Amos. You've been speaking to our hearts through this book of Amos. And Lord, we ask that you would do that again once more uh, today. Lord, that you would use a, 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 a passage of the Bible, a, a portion of the Bible written 2,800 years ago, and you would speak to our hearts as if you wrote it for us uh, this day. And so be with us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you're looking for Amos chapter 4, let me just remind you that the beginning of the book of Amos, there's nine chapters in the book of Amos, the beginning of the book of Amos, those first six chapters are a series of sermons. There's four different sermons that are found here. And so chapter 1 and 2 is actually one sermon. Chapter 3 and chapter 4 are a second sermon and a third sermon. And then the longest of the sermons will be chapter 5 and chapter 6. And today we're going to begin to make our way through chapter 4 and a portion of chapter 5, which means we'll be uh, looking at the third sermon that Amos delivered to the northern kingdom and even a portion of that fourth and final sermon. Now you'll notice, look at uh, chapter 4, verse 1, and you'll, you'll see how Amos begins. He says, hear this word. That was the exact same way that he began chapter 3. It'll be the same way that he begins chapter 5. He says, hear this word. And again, this is how he's going to begin this sermon to this group of people, the northern kingdom. He says these words, I'm going to read the whole verse. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Now, he says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. And by the time he gets to the end of the verse, it becomes clear that the people that he is speaking to are the women of Israel. So if you didn't catch it, he's calling the women of Israel uh, a bunch of cows. Uh, now, I think that's a good way to get yourself in trouble as a preacher, uh, to alienate yourself from at least half of the congregation that is sitting there. But I'll remind you of this. Our friend Amos was a sheep raiser. He didn't even consider himself a shepherd, that he was a sheep raiser. And throughout the book, you're going to see him make these different references to things that he knows from his life as a sheep raiser. He knows about the cows of Bashan. He knows their characteristics. And they're the best thing that he can come to mind to compare with uh, the women of Israel. And I appreciate that about Amos. Uh, Amos tells us, uh, Amos chapter 7, he says, look, I'm not a prophet. I wasn't the son of prophet. I'm not some professional that is going about doing these particular things. He said at that time, I'm a sheep raiser. And so what Amos did was Amos took things that he knew and he used those things to create these pictures that would explain what it was that God was seeking to tell 
to the people that were before him. And so Amos doesn't try to become something that he isn't. And I appreciate that about, about him. I value that about him. He doesn't respond to the call of God by changing himself so that he could come off more spiritual. He doesn't respond to the call of God by changing himself so he would sound more elite to the people of Bethel or whomever it might be. He just remained Amos, a humble farmer from southern Judah sent by God with a message for his people. And in this case, he takes what is familiar, the cows of Bashan, and those cows were particularly known for what we'll say, we'll call their plumpness. Uh, they, they were large, they were fat, they were very, very healthy, we might say. And, and he likens them to the women uh, of Israel. And I, I would also say this, if you're ever going to preach, uh, you want to think long and hard about likening the women of your congregation uh, to the cows of Bashan. Uh, just make sure the Lord's telling you to do so. Uh, and that's what Amos does. He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, you who oppress the poor and you crush the needy. And the picture that Amos is setting out to paint here in this first verse is a picture of, if you will, this self-indulgent people. This people that are building their wealth and building their luxury, as he says, bring that we may drink. We're going to lay back on our couches and have people come serve us. Uh, he says they're building their wealth, they're building their luxurious lifestyle by oppressing the poor and the needy of their society. He says you oppress the poor and you crush the needy. And so they're self-indulgent in their luxury and they're either oblivious to or they're indifferent of uh, the suffering that they are inflicting upon the needy and the oppressed that they're dealing with here. And so thus, while others are suffering, they're feasting. And while others are groaning in anguish, they're rejoicing. And all the while, they're forgetting that the Lord is looking upon their actions and the attitudes of their heart. Now, there's a lot that's going to go on in this particular chapter. A lot of things are mentioned in the next 10 or 12 verses here. But I think you can boil the entire message down to a couple of phrases. One that is found in, in verse 1, and then a second phrase that is found down in verse 12. And so if you look down to verse 12, you'll notice he says, Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. So if you take out all of the middle stuff between verse 1 and verse 12, the message that you would uh, be left with is this. Uh, it is, hear this word, O Israel, prepare to meet your God. And all the rest of the information sort of fills in the details of that call. That's the message that God has for Amos to deliver to this northern kingdom in this third sermon. Hear this word, O Israel, prepare to meet your God. Because after repeated attempts to reach the people of Israel, and that each of those attempts failed to bring the people to the place of repentance, God finally comes to the place where he has to say, I made all these attempts to reach you, but you refused to respond. And so now I'm going to have to come to you, prepare for that meeting. He continues in verse 2, by digging into sort of the material of this sermon, he says, The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you will be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. 
Now we'll see today, as we get a little further down in this chapter, in verses 6 through 11, that the Lord is going to recount the various ways in which he sought to bring the people back unto himself, but again, the people would not listen. And so thus, he has to then say, I tried all these things, you would not listen. And so thus he has to say, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with hooks. We see that there in verse 2. He says in verse 3, and they will lead you through the broken down walls or the breaches that are in the walls. We see that in verse 3. And they'll take them, as it says at the end of verse 3, to a foreign fortress uh, or a prison, if you will, um, which is the word harmon that is there. And so the people are going to be led astray. Their walls are going to be broken down. They're going to be taken away captive. And Amos here, writing around the year 760 BC, he describes perfectly the means by which the Assyrian Empire depopulated and exiled a conquered community. They would go in, they would defeat them, and then they would parade the people out of the defeated city and bring them somewhere else to live, that they might assimilate them uh, to some brand new culture. And that's what, exactly what they're going to do to the nation of Israel in about 30 to 40 years from the time of Amos's prophecy. Now remember, though, Amos prophesied during a high point in the history of Israel. Israel had never been so economically and financially prosperous as they had been between the year 800 B.C. and the year 760 B.C. And so for Amos to come along and to say that you're going to be a defeated nation that's led away captive uh, into, the, into other places here, other uh, places of captivity, that, that's absurd uh, for many people to hear and to consider and to think of. You don't know what you're talking about. And yet in less than 30 years, the Assyrians, who hadn't been very interested in Israel, turned their attention on Israel and began to besiege the nation of Israel and some of its key cities, and within 40 years, 722 B.C., the children of Israel were taken away captive to a foreign land, exactly as Amos said would go down, exactly as the Lord said would go down. Verse 4 continues, and this is the Lord speaking through his prophet Amos. He says, come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days, Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, of that which uh, is leavened, and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord your God. Now, verses 4 and 5, it describes what it looks like when the Lord gives a people over to their sin. And so the general way that God operates, we see it a number of different examples of it in the scripture, is God will challenge a people on their sin, he'll challenge a people on their sin, and he'll continue to do so, challenging them. But eventually, if that person refuses to respond, if that people refuses to respond, he sort of pulls, he pulls back, he lifts his hands up, and he says, all right, have your sin. We see that, for instance, with the Pharaoh in Egypt, as Moses kept bringing him these warnings, and it would seem that Pharaoh would say, okay, okay, I give, I give, I give, but then he would go right back into his sin. And so the Lord gave him over eventually to his sin. What verses 4 and 5 do, it, des it describes how God gives a person or a people over to the hardness of their heart in response to their own hardening of their heart. 
And again, God did that with someone like Pharaoh. And here with the nation of Israel, God kept calling them back unto himself, but they kept refusing to come back to him. God kept revealing to them in sort of this increasing measure the error of their ways, but not only did they keep doing those things that would culminate in God's judgment, but they kept doing them in a greater and a greater and a greater fashion, which would obviously bring, bring even more of God's judgment. And so finally, the Lord says, come to Bethel and go to Gilgal. He says, you'll see it there in verse 4, he says, and multiply your transgression. He says, bring your daily sacrifices, bring your tithes, bring your sacrifice of thanksgiving, bring your free will offerings. He tells them to continue to do all of those religious practices that they have been doing. But what you'll notice is it's not because those practices meant anything to him, but it was so that the full measure of judgment might come upon them. Now you hear that and you say, what? Why would God do that? You, you hear it and you say, how could God be upset with these various offerings that they're bringing? We see here the people are tithing. It says they're bringing their daily sacrifices. It says they're bringing their Thanksgiving sacrifice. They're expressing gratitude in their giving. And then it says they, they're even going above and beyond by bringing free will offerings. Not something they were obligated to do, but something they chose to do a free will offering. And we look at all that and we say, how is it that God could be upset with those things? Well, one thing you'll notice, a couple of offerings that are conspicuously absent are the sin offering or the burnt offering. The men, these men, these women of Israel, they were engaged in all these different religious practices, yet as we've been seeing through this book, all the while their hearts have been given over to sin. Their hearts have been given over to rebellion against the Lord and against his ways. And yet Sunday morning comes, they drop a few bucks or a whole bunch of bucks, whatever it may be, in the offering plate. The sin offering that I mentioned, that acknowledged areas of sin in a person's life. A person was aware of sin in their life, they brought a sin offering. In the Old Testament, the burn offering, it was an offering that was completely consumed in the fire and it was meant to communicate it was, a, it was a voluntary thing a person brought, but it was meant to communicate, God, I'm wholly yours. I'm giving all of myself to you, completely consecrated. Like the offering itself would be completely consumed, I want myself to be completely in your hands. And again, as we look at these uh, children of Israel that Amos is speaking to, there's no mention of those two offerings. So that's kind of their first problem. They're bringing all these extra things, but there's no acknowledgement of their sin. Secondly, notice where they're bringing these offerings. Verse 4, verse 5, he says, bring them to Bethel. Bring them to Gilgal. A little later in the book, he'll talk about the city of Beersheba, and he'll talk about the place of Dan. These were the various high places that the northern kingdom had set up in defiance of God, who declared that Zion or Jerusalem was the place where he was to be worshipped, the place where the people would come to bring their sacrifices. God says, come to Bethel, come to Gilgal, go to Beersheba, excuse me, Beersheba, go to Dan. Every offering that the children of Israel brought to one of those high places was an act of sin and rebellion against the Lord and his word. 
And that's why we read in the verse, he says, come to Bethel and transgress. Go to Gilgal and multiply your transgressions. A side note. Many assume that God is basically pleased with all religious practices. That as long as a person is sincere, that God sees through the practice and he sees the sincerity and he's pleased by that. You need to know from the scripture that that is not the way that God thinks. On the contrary, not only is God not pleased with our religious practices, he is very, actually very much displeased by those practices. Look down for a moment into the next chapter. Look at verse 21 and following. There in verse 21, he says, I hate, I despise your religious feast. He says a little bit later, he says, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, your church meetings. He says even further than that in chapter 23, and he refers to their songs of worship. You'll notice he calls them noise. And he says, take the noise of your songs away from me. And so as strange as it may sound, religion is abhorrent to the Lord. Because religion is man's attempt to relink themselves with God, and it's a denial of what Jesus Christ came to this earth to do. Man cannot, if the Bible's correct, man cannot, through any religious sacrifices or duties that they may perform, relink themselves to God. Because the Bible is clear, man is desperately wicked, and unless God reaches out and grabs a hold of our lives, we would have no spiritual hope. Man-made religious attempts deny the reality of that truth. And let me add this. God's hatred of religion or religious activities, it includes religion that goes by the name of Judaism or even by the name of Christianity, which is what this, the entire point of Amos's prophecy and his prophetic denunciations has been about in these last couple chapters. What is pleasing to the Lord is a genuine, thankful, and obedient response to the work that God is doing in a person's life. Those are the sort of sacrifices the Lord delights to receive. So you'll notice in verse 4, you'll notice in verse 5, it makes mention of sacrifices of that which was leavened. You see it there in verse 5. Leaven throughout the Bible is a picture of sin. Leviticus 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, other places. It's a picture of sin which, if allowed to remain, will soon permeate the item in which it is found. And this religious people, they were bringing their offerings. They were bringing the free will offerings, the thanksgiving offerings, the tithes, all the things. They were bringing those offerings, but they were religious offerings that were brought while their lives all the while were permeated by sin. What were they doing? They were playing the game of religion. And their hearts weren't inclined toward the Lord in any way. In fact, you'll notice the main reason why they're bringing these offerings is so that other people might take notice of what it is they're bringing. Notice some of the key descriptors in verses 4 and 5, mostly in verse 5. Words like proclaim the offering, publish the offering, or how they love to do these particular things. These sacrifices was for the sake, were for the sake of appearance, so that others might see them, think well of them, think, wow, how spiritual that person is, and so on and so forth. This whole passage 
is a sad commentary on the pitifully low state that Israel descended into. And the entire religious system, a, a re, entire religious system that was built on sin and on transgression and on ritualism and even on pride. God continues in verse 6, and here is where, as I said a little bit earlier, he begins to list the many ways in which he appealed to them to repent of their sin and to come back to him. And so he says in verse 6, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, and yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 7, he says, I withheld the rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest. And I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another, or one field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two, on three, so two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water, and they would not be satisfied. And yet, you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 6, he says, I gave you cleanness of teeth. That, that experience decided it, it speaks to this idea that the people began to experience food shortages, a famine perhaps, um, hit the land. And if they had no food, then certainly they're not going to have anything caught in their teeth. So they're not going to have any dirty teeth. But despite that hardship, the people did not return to the Lord. He says how he withheld the rain. There was a drought. He talks about it being three months before the harvest when the rain was crucial so that they could have the fullest of, har uh, of a harvest. And how he would make it rain on one city or one field, but not on another. How he would do these things and yet he says, the people did not return to me. Verse 9, he says, I struck you with blight and with mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locust devoured. And yet, again, you can see in verse 9, and yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. He says, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner, the type that were in the land of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword. I carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp from all the dead go up into your nostrils. And yet, you see there, he says, you did not return to me. Verse 11, I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, and yet, once more, you did not return to me. And so you see all these different forms of chastening, of disciplining that the Lord brought. I struck you with blight and mildew, verse 9. The devouring locust I sent, also verse 9. The pestilence after the manner of Egypt. And I overthrew some of you as those that were overthrown at Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet, at the end of each one of those, you have that phrase. It's a troubling phrase. It's, yet to each one of these things, you did not return to me. And because Israel would not listen to the chastisement of the Lord, his hand grew heavier and heavier and heavier upon them. As we learn in the book of Hebrews, it says that the Lord chastens the one that he loves. He disciplines the one that he loves. And that chastening, it starts off slowly, but it increases incrementally as might be necessary to bring the person to the place of repentance. And that's what God has been doing over the millennia or over the hundreds of years, at least the decades, there in the nation of Israel. The Lord will use the smallest amount of discipline necessary to turn our hearts back to him. 
But sadly, if we will not turn back, then the hand of his chastening will grow heavier and heavier and heavier until we finally do return. It doesn't say this in the passage, but we could almost hear the Lord crying out, what more do I have to do to get your attention? Why is it that you will not return to me? And Israel's unwillingness to return is perhaps their biggest sin of all in the book of Amos. Because all of us will stumble, all of us will fall into sin and feel God's corrective hand. And so that corrective hand might simply be the, the internal feeling of the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we have, or it might be some form of outward consequence that comes about as a result of our sin. But one way or another, God's corrective hand is going to be upon us. The problem with Israel and the problem with you and I sometimes is that we reject the many ways in which God tries to bring us back unto himself. And we get ourselves further and further and further away from the Lord. Brother and sister, we should not be like the nation of Israel. We must not be like the nation of Israel. And so when God puts his, his hand on an area of our life, and when God begins to increasingly apply some pressure to that area of our life, it's our responsibility in those instances to respond, to confess that area of sin, and then to turn from that area of sin, and to do so sooner rather than later. Sadly, Israel would not do that. And so we read in verse 12, he says, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, and because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. Amos begins verse 12. This is sort of the conclusion of the sermon, his sermon. He begins with the word, therefore, because they would not respond Therefore, God would have to bring even more severe chastening against them. And that was going to come in the form of the Assyrian Empire, making its way into the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, and leading the people away into captivity. Amos says there, prepare to meet your God. Now this verse about preparing to meet your God, or at least this phrase of this verse, it's often used uh, by preachers, as a text to appeal to their audiences to come and begin a relationship with the Lord. That's not what's going on in the context of things here. What's going on is this is not an appeal that the people would repent and return because their case has already been decided. This is actually a summons to appear for the day of sentencing. The case has already been decided. The people are going to be judged. And now they're going to be sentenced to exactly what that judgment is going to be. It's going to be they're taken off into captivity. And I think as hard as it is to hear this, this is a message that we need to hear. And it's a message that we need to proclaim in our day as well. Because the state of our eternity will be decided on this side of the grave. It's on this side of the grave where we ready ourselves to meet the Lord when we come to the other side of the grave. And there are many that think that they'll get right with God in that day. The reality is in that day, it will be too late 
to get right with God. It is here in this life. This is where we prepare ourselves to meet the Lord. It's here in this life where we deal with our sin problem, which the Bible says that every one of us has and that it separates us from the Lord. And so to quote the prophet Isaiah, he said, this is what the Lord says, in the time of favor, I will answer you, and in the day of salvation, I will heal you, or I will help you. Today is the day of God's favor. Today is the day of God's grace. And today is the day to get ourselves right with the Lord so that we will be prepared on that day. Today is the day of salvation. That day will be too late. And so look, if you're watching this and you are not yet in a relationship with God through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, then you need to cry out to him today to forgive you of your sins that separate you temporarily here on the earth and eternally when you cross over and you uh, pass from this life. If you've never done that, you need to do that today. As we continue into chapter 5, we pick up now in the fourth and the final sermon. And this one, again, as I said earlier, this will be the longest of the four sermons that uh, Amos uh, delivers to the northern kingdom. He begins from, in a familiar way, hear this word, O house of Israel. Now the full paragraph is, hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. Amos is told here to sing a lamentation. A lamentation is a song of mourning, not in the morning. It's a song of mourning. It's a song of lament. It's a dirge, if you will. And he is told to sing this lamentation over the nation of Israel. We have a book in our Bible entitled the book entitled the book of lamentations and in that case it was Jeremiah's song of lamentation over the southern kingdom of Judah. Amos here in this sermon is singing his song of lamentation over the northern tribe or the northern kingdoms the nation of Israel. Verse 4 he says for thus says the Lord to the house of Israel seek me and live do not seek Bethel, do not enter Gilgal, do not cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel will come to nothing. Again, Bethel, Beersheba, Gilgal, Dan, all of those were locations, uh, they were the centers of the idol worship of the northern kingdom. They were the high places where they put their statues and they went and they worshipped uh, in those places. Notice says, the Lord says, don't go to Bethel, don't go to Beersheba, don't go to Gilgal. The Lord says, seek me, seek me and live. Not your false idols in those false places of worship. He says, seek me. He says it again in verse six. six. He says, seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. And so for the second time, he exhorts them, find your life in me, not in some imitation of me. Find it in me. And how important it is for us to hear those words. Because how desperately humanity wants to possess life, to grab it uh, by the horns, as some might say. 
We want to be, humanity wants to be happy, wants to be fulfilled, wants to experience peace and joy, but so often look to the wrong places for each of those things. And while those things that they, they find themselves coming to, while they might bring some temporary pleasure and joy and happiness and peace, they always, always end up leaving a person empty. They always end up falling short. The Lord says, seek me. True life, according to the scripture, abundant life, as it's sometimes called, is found in one place and one place only, and that is that it's found in the Lord. Speaking to this, Jesus declared in John chapter 10, he said, the thief, the devil, comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they might have it to the full. And that is what you and I were created to possess, life and life to the full. And so we must seek the Lord with all of our hearts. We must seek the Lord with all of our souls and all of our minds and even with all of our strength if we are ever going to truly possess on this side of eternity the life that God has designed for us to enjoy. And so as we begin to draw our... Uh, our time together this morning to a close, let me just ask some questions for you to meditate on today and this week. And th the first one is this, what is going on in your walk with the Lord of late? How's your walk with the Lord been of late? Now you may not have descended as far as the nation of Israel had descended. You may not have begun sacrificing to foreign idols and the like as they had done, but have you drifted a bit as they had? Have you continued to follow through with your religious exercises and your religious rituals, bringing your various sacrifices, but at the same time you continued to engage in sin and in rebellion in some other area of your life? Have you been looking to things other than the Lord to bring you peace, to bring you fulfillment, to bring you joy, to bring you satisfaction? None of us needs to descend into the depths as Israel did, and to finally, figure out, to finally figure out what God would have for us. None of us has to go as low as Israel went. And so if the Lord is bringing conviction this morning, that's his initial voice of chastening. And so his voice this morning, that's a relatively minor form of God's chastening. It's one of the first initial steps that he'll bring into our lives to cause us to return to him. And so if he's speaking to you today, don't allow yourself to drift any further from what the Lord would have for you. Don't allow yourself to spiral any deeper. To quote the book of Hebrews, today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart as they did in the day of rebellion. So if God is directing, then respond. So if God is calling you to confess an area of sin, then agree with him that that thing that you have become involved with or that attitude that you have been holding on to is not what he would have for you and give it over to him. If the Lord is speaking to you about an area of your heart that has become devoted to something other than to him, lay that area of your heart down upon his altar and let him reign in every area of your heart in fullness. If the Lord has revealed to you this morning that rather than seeking after him with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
you've been instead running after other things, then come back to him. Confess what has been going on and ask him for his strength and for his enabling to run after him with every part of your being. That's how we respond to a passage like this. Sadly, the children of Israel hadn't been doing that. And each time that God brought his little voice of chastening into their lives, and each time it got a little more incrementally uh, stronger and larger and louder, they rejected it. Let's not be like those children of Israel here in the Old Testament. Amen? And so what I want to do is, before you kind of head off and turn off the, the whatever you're listening to, um, Facebook or whatever it may be, before you kind of go off on your own, let's just take a moment of silence to allow the Lord to speak. That he might minister into our hearts, this is what I'm talking about. This is the area that you have drifted from me. So let's do that. Let's just take a moment. And Father, we are grateful that you're faithful. Lord, you, you have a good desire for your children. You want to transform them into the image of your son. And, and Lord, you don't, uh, you don't desire to see us left in our sin. And so in your grace and in your mercy and uh, in your kindness, you reveal areas of sin to us. And, and Father, I ask that you would be doing that today. And so maybe it's sort of this open rebellion that everyone would look at and say, yep, that's an area of sin. Or maybe it's just some attitude of our hearts. Maybe it's a desire of our hearts. Maybe we've been drawn after things that are distracting us on this earth. And they're certainly hindering our, our walk and our run, our race with you. And so, Father, I pray for all that are watching today. Lord, if, uh, if you've laid your hand upon an area, would you give them the courage today? Lord, you just sort of relinquish that area over to you. Lord, would you move upon their heart where they, they come to the place of saying, you know, what, you know what, Lord, nothing is worth getting in the way of my relationship with you. And would you do that really good stirring work? And Father, we believe uh, every one of us will be in a better place with you as a result of that having been done this morning. And so bless your children, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close out our time with a song, uh, which is just another time for you to just meditate on what it is that the Lord would have for you through this message this morning. And I want to encourage you, if the Lord's been speaking to you about an area of your life and you want to communicate with some other folks, I want to encourage you to communicate that to some other folks. So if you're sitting with your family members or some others this morning watching this, why don't you take some time to just talk through what it is that God has spoken to your heart this morning. And if you don't have somebody there with you and you want to drop it in the comments, we would love to be able to re reach it back out to you and begin that conversation, that dialogue. So you can put it in the comments, you can send us an email, whatever it might be, call us uh, at the office. We'll be back in tomorrow morning uh, so that we can begin a dialogue with you and rejoice in the good work that God is doing in your life. I want to encourage you, be blessed today. Let's worship one final time together.